a new national policy paper was released today, and it recommends that a bold approach be uh, taken to deal with uh, relieving the opioid crisis, which is uh, happening right now in Canada. To talk about this, we are joined on the line by uh, Dr. Patrick Smith. He's the national CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association who put together the policy paper. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Dr. Smith, you weren't the only group to put together this policy paper. I mean, you, you put it all together, but there were a lot of people that worked on it. Who worked on the national policy paper? So the Canadian Mental Health Association has um, uh, uh, 5,000 staff across the country in 330 locations. So we really worked internally to gather those, um, the content experts across the country in this area, but also reached out and looked at the research of other like-minded organizations, um, looked um, researched locally um, within Canada, but also looked at what the um, what the drug policy implications were across um, across the world and looking at other countries and their experiences. And you came up with uh, one uh, very controversial, it's going to be controversial uh, because not everybody understands this, but way to deal with the opioid crisis, which is literally killing thousands of people, it's decriminalization. That's correct. And and I think the, um, the important thing that when you talk about decriminalizing all illicit drug use, which is one of our bold recommendations in the paper, at first, people get uh, defensive and they don't understand it. And I think that one of the things that's most important is to be able to provide the kind of education and awareness that people, so they understand what we're talking about. And once we talk it through, it's really not very bold at all. It's, it's a common sense approach. It's really taking a public health perspective on a public health epidemic um, instead of trying to criminalize the public health epidemic. And so the big difference between decriminalization and legalization, which some people jump to, is decriminalization says that for those who are using opiates, a small amount for personal use, instead of charging them with a crime and sending them to prison or jail, um, that it will not be illegal to use that. It's still illegal because it's not a legal substance. It's still illegal to, to um, develop and um, and deliver uh, the the opiates. So the selling, the uh, manufacturing of opiates, illicit drugs are still illegal. But but if you're caught with a, a small amount for personal use, then you um, you're going to be met with a more of a public health approach instead of a criminal approach. Because what we know is that people who use opiates and other illicit drugs often find that they can't seek treatment because of the stigmatization and the fear of reprisal. Uh, if they come in, they're doing something illegally, so it keeps them from reaching out for, for help. And what we know from the experience in Portugal, who, um, who has gone through the decriminalization, they've, they've shown that 60% increase in the number of people that got into treatment and a 60% decrease in the number of people that they charge and, and put into prisons because of opiate use. So how much did you look at that Portugal model when coming up with the recommendations? Because they've been doing that for 15 years. That's correct. It was a, you know what, internationally, um, we've been talking about that at the United Nations, at our UNDC. We've been talking about the decriminalization of illicit drugs for many, many, many years. The research is out there. Portugal was really the country the first country that embraced it. And so I think everyone internationally all around the world are quoting the Portugal experience because it's, it's a one-off. 
I've been to Portugal, and I think the worry with de- decriminalization for people that are listening, and trust me, doctor, there are people listening right now that are thinking, uh, well, I don't want that. Everybody is going to just be open season. Everybody's going to be uh, shooting heroin any, you know, down every alleyway. I was shocked. I, I didn't see anybody using drugs. However, you know, you can walk down a street in uh, you know, Vancouver and look down an alley and see someone shooting up. Well, and I think that's the key is that once you've decriminalized something in the early, early days when we were talking about decriminalizing um, cannabis use um, in countries like uh, the Netherlands had done that. Again, all the research suggests that you're, it takes it from the streets and um, and it, people are also concerned, oh, if, we, if you decriminalize something, there's going to be an increase in use. Mm-hmm. And reality is it's just not the case. It actually has always shown that decriminalization does lead to a decrease in use. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the key with this opiate crisis is it is multifaceted. It, it, one, one solution isn't going to address the whole problem because there are various different aspects to this opiate crisis that each need to be addressed in their own right. And how are you proposing we uh, tackle it? <clears throat> okay, so number one, we know that when we talk about opiate use, we know that Canada is one of the highest... Um, countries where there's the highest prescription um, opiate use. So that um, for many years, physicians thought that opiates were were a good um, approach to treating chronic pain. What we know now is it wasn't the case. It's actually not very good for chronic pain at all. But all those people who were were prescribed opiates for chronic pain, um, we know that opiates can become extremely addictive. And if you couple that with not having the appropriate treatments for chronic pain, then you have addiction that's kind of masking an ongoing chronic pain condition. But here's, it's really complex. You can teach physicians to, to prescribe um, alternate therapies to pain. And one physician, a couple of physicians said to me at the opiate conference that we had last year in Ottawa, it's, it's well and good that you promote these non-pharmacological interventions for pain, like therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and different approaches. But when I have a patient in my office mm-hmm. and they, they don't have access to a drug plan or to a, to a um, they, don't, they don't have coverage, then I can't write them a script for CBT that they have to go and pay out of pocket. So one of the key challenges in Canada is we're one of the only countries that don't have the primary mental health services covered in our uh, universal health care. So that should be added. That's exactly right. So we've been promoting that even separate from the opiate crisis, our basic response to mental health needs to be invested in. That sounds expensive and I'm certainly not shooting it down. It's just, you know, uh, and, and it, and I am one of the people that agree we need to do something uh, for mental health, but well, you know, it, it's really cost-saving, and, and the good news is we're not pioneers in this area. Yep. Of all G7 countries, we spend the lowest percentage of our healthcare budget on mental health. And the, the sad fact is it costs our society rather than saves money. So even if you look at the U.K., mm-hmm. which they were recently in a situation like ours where they found themselves behind the eight ball, they invested in psychologists, social workers, people front lines who are much less expensive than physicians. Because right now, if you can get into a physician, even a family doctor, you can, and, and they can provide cognitive behavioral therapy, you can get them to provide that. Mm-hmm. And Canada pays for that. But there are many, many disciplines that are better trained 
and um, much less expensive. And I imagine that would free up time for uh, physicians to work on, you know, other uh, medical problems that you're dealing with. That's certainly what they found Mm -hmm. in the UK. They also found that they were closing um, uh, sections of jails. They were, so when, you know, when we look at the untreated uh, mental health problems in general, um, there are such cost um, burden on ERs, on, on um, hospitalization, jails. So when you're actually policing, basic, that's right, policing. If we're putting the basic services of counseling, psychotherapy, and some of those basic services and supports in place, you have a dramatic um, increase in outcomes for people, but a dramatic decrease in more costly not effective services. We're talking with Dr. Patrick Smith. He's the national CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association. I understand also in your uh, your national uh, paper released today, it's a policy paper, and you've got recommendations on how we can deal with the opioid crisis, starting off with decriminalization and working through different steps. One of them would also be, you know, I've talked to several doctors on the opioid crisis right now, and there are people listening that say, yeah, you know, it's it's so insidious, uh, opioid addiction, because, you know, it, it just hits every uh, spectrum you know, of the population. There's, you know, everybody from grandmothers to, you know, street people that are addicted to opioids. Um, One of the plans is that you uh, help doctors with their approach because uh, doctors say that opioids can be effective in, you know, relieving pain for the short term. And so part of this plan is if opioids are prescribed, treatment should, you know, also come along with an exit plan, correct? That's correct. And especially, and, and to really help physicians, and, and we've seen a big change already in, in Canadian physician um, prescribing practices once this has um, been raised, because um, Canadian physicians are now more likely to be aware of the differential effect that opiates can have on acute pain, which it's very effective for, and chronic pain, which it, it was once thought more effective than, than the studies have borne out. So, um, so it's really to help, so help Physicians change their prescribing practices, but like many say, you need to also provide us with those evidence-based programs that other countries can utilize because that's what's going to make the difference. And I think, um, you know, how we can do that in a comprehensive way is to have a national addictions and pain strategy. Many countries have that. And it's really to say, let's, let's take a very concerted approach to this because this is one aspect, but I don't want to lose the sight that um, one of the other phenomena in North America, in Canada, is, is ravaged by this, is fentanyl and carfentanyl. Mm-hmm. So this is separate from physician practices. This is now once someone is on opiates and they're using illicit street drugs, um, it's, it's the contamination of the product that they're using. So we so that comes to public education. You know, you've seen in BC, um, a young couple goes out for um, a date, gets a babysitter, and they die of a cocaine. Um, they die of an overdose using recreational cocaine because they um, don't they, know that it's been cut with carfentanyl. That's correct. And so one of the challenges that we have as well is educating the public about what's in the drugs because um, in Portugal that's one of the things that they really haven't um, had to deal with they don't have the big surge of fentanyl and carfentanyl and it's certainly a big part of the escalating overdose the deaths that we're seeing in Canada so doctor I'm, I'm unfortunately uh, I'm on a time limit here but uh, according th- this new national policy paper is this delivered directly to the prime minister the health minister who's going to read this and what can you expect from it 
Well, we've, um, we're, we're very um, heartened by seeing a very whole-of-Canada, whole-of-government approach when we're looking at the federal government. So we've been in discussions with them. They have um, a copy of our report. Uh, we know that they're, they're already in discussions at the Health Research Caucus and in many parts of the federal government. They've made some significant changes even in the last year to support some of the harm reduction strategies that have been put in place. What we're saying is this is a comprehensive approach. If you look at the investment we had in H1N1 um, and how we, how we addressed that crisis, we're not even scratching the surface yet. And, and the, the formidable action that needs to be taken to, to deal with a crisis of this nature. Do we need so, to stop looking at uh, these people as addicts and more like victims? Well, I think I think it's important to look at, like you're saying, there's su- there's such a range of uh, people who are find themselves addicted to opiates. Some people have had a car accident, or and they have chronic pain. They've been prescribed, and now they're addicted. Um, others, we have to look at the social determinants of health because we do know that there are some populations that have much higher overdose rates, much higher rates of opiate use, and so we have to look at some of those fundamental determinants of health. Um, safe housing, clean water, some of the things that have really been highlighted in this federal budget, uh, investing in um, decreasing the inequities, the health inequities across the country. That's going to go a long way in the precursors to what gets someone into, um, if, if it isn't just because you've been uh, prescribed the medication for chronic pain, we, have, uh, we also know that the psychological pain of the health inequities really drives a lot of um, drug-seeking behavior. Well, it sounds like this is a complex problem and you've got a multifaceted cure for it. I wish you the best of luck uh, with, you know, uh, what you've put forth to the government and them hearing what you said. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. That's Dr. Patrick Smith, National CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association.